The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, February 22nd, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Credit Donald Trump. Not known for his intellectual provocations or, say, being the architect of many a teachable moment, Trump has given us something. He's given us a real chance to explore, examine, and debate, to analyze Swedish immigration policy. You'd have thought he might have prompted debates and discussions on such disparate areas as, say, crime rates of the last half century or general knowledge about the generals or whether a $12 ladder can defeat a $20 billion wall. But then there was this speech in Melbourne, Florida, when Trump mentioned a terrible incident in Sweden. Sweden! You look at what's happening last night in Sweden. 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 Who would believe this? Sweden. Okay, not Sweden. Or yes, Sweden, but not last night. Anyway, the story is Trump saw an interview on Fox News with a filmmaker claiming massive refugee integration problems in Sweden. Trump assumed or presumed or didn't give a damn about accuracy, zoomed that it was some specific terrorist incident the night before and an idea was born, a bad, inaccurate idea. So after Trump inaccurately made his claim about last night in Sweden, his enablers rushed in ex post facto to say that Sweden was indeed the source of a refugee menace. And guess what? There was an actual riot in a section of Sweden that was populated by immigrants the other day. So guess what the media did? The media covered it. Now, depending on your news outlet, covered was portrayed as admitted. See, I get this email from a generally conservative news source called Grabian, and they round up clips from cable news, but they give it their own spin. So the headline on this was, Jake Tapper admits immigrants responsible for riots in Sweden. All right, let's hear Jake Tapper admitting this. I might call it reporting. You decide. While we're talking about crime, I, I want to uh, show some video. There was a riot in Sweden last night with all the uh, focus on um, President Trump's uh, clumsily delivered comments about a, a terrorist incident that never actually happened, but he was actually referring to a segment he'd seen on Fox News. Uh, there were immigrants uh, to blame for this riot in Stockholm. The media also did dutifully cover reports that rape have risen in Sweden, and they also further provided the context that this might have been because the definition of rape greatly expanded in Sweden. Julian Assange can tell you all about that. Although as a non-Swede, maybe he is making a couple points at once. It's hard to tell with Julian Assange. Anyway, I have a point to make about this. And it's not just that Trump was misleading or that the uh, fake news media defined to say the major papers and the major networks are actually quite good at really reporting the actual news. I know that actually reporting the actual news with actual context, I know that will never move a Trump supporter. And I've been hearing so many conversations, and I'm sure you have too, that say essentially, oh, what good does actual reporting do? What, what should the role of the media be in this post-truth era? And I say the role is this. It's this exactly. It's just to report what's happening, to act pre-post-truth. And if someone wants to argue they're only speaking to the converted, you know, in a lot of cases, that's okay. And you as a just listener, you're probably converted. You've heard the word and you shall be healed. And that's okay. There's still a value, a great value in that. Actual facts about what is actually going on. I don't know. I find them interesting. I find them 
consciousness expanding. I find them to be worth it. Just knowledge for knowledge's sake. And even if it's not particularly convincing to the close-minded, it's what we should do. Look, we are 20 months until an election and 44 until the next presidential election. And not every bit of information can be parceled out with the design of convincing the unconvinced or the ignorant or the unplugged in. So now I learned some interesting Swedish immigrant news. And I know the Trump apologists have not unlearned whatever their impression of the news is. That's fine. It's still news. On the show today, I spiel about a name close to me, but the specific inhabitant of said moniker is not. He's Milo. But first, we've got our clearances. We've been checked out because we're about to interview a former CIA agent who interviewed Saddam Hussein. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. You know, the U.S. has really bad luck. We have all these enemies and they all happen to be madmen. King Jong-il was a madman. King jong Un, oh, more of a madman. Gaddafi was a madman. The Ayatollah is a madman. Saddam was a madman. The kind of madman who rose from fairly humble beginnings, ruled over a factious nation, gave his family and his kinsmen power, status, and wealth, stayed in power in a dangerous neighborhood for years. That sort of madman seems like a highly functional madman. Maybe Saddam wasn't a madman. Look, maybe he deserved the description, the butcher of Baghdad. But at the same time, maybe he eluded the United States comprehension. That is a big takeaway from my reading of Debriefing the President, the interrogation of Saddam Hussein. It is written by former CIA senior analyst and I believe the first American to really talk to Saddam Hussein. Hello, John. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So, John, let me just say that I have read biographies, books marketed as biographies, you know, as told to through a ghostwriter where the biographer clearly had less time with the subject and got less honesty out of the subject than you got from Saddam. So let me just compliment you at first that this book uh, on one level serves as a fine biography. But, Thank you. Sure. But there's also the interesting backstory about how you, John Nixon, got to be in this room with the captured Iraqi leader. Can you give us some of that? 
I was a, a leadership analyst in the CIA, and I started in 1998. And the first account I had, when we we call particular projects accounts in in agency speak, um, was working on Iraq and working on the Iraqi leadership. And the Iraqi leadership really constituted Saddam Hussein, his family, and his close aides. And so I developed a, a specialty in who Saddam was and learning as much as I possibly could about him. So the what what you knew going in, were you essentially uh, tasked with finding out the questions that the Americans want answered? Or were you also tasked with, you know, confirming everything that you and the intelligence community thought they knew about Saddam Hussein? A little bit of both. Plus, uh, originally, I was put into Iraq to help with finding him. And then once we found him, uh, then those other those other questions that you mentioned came into play. And so I should say in the book, you know, they relied on you. It seems that you were the one who knew exactly where his tattoos were, where his scars were, that his lip drooped. Yes. One of the things about being an analyst, particularly an analyst at the CIA, um, you, you become a little bit obsessed with your your quarry. And I can say honestly that that was the case with Saddam. He was an endlessly fascinating individual to study. Do you think that, well, it's obvious that not everyone in the military got Saddam. Like there's this one kind of throwaway line that kind of shocked me, which is when they captured him, you'd heard that one of the members of the military punched him and said, that's for 9-11. So let's think about that, knowing what we know about Saddam's non-involvement in 9-11. But were people making important decisions about Iraq, not as fully versed on Iraq as you were, but adequately versed on Iraq? Um, you mean in Washington? Yeah, I mean, big decisions that it would help to know about Shia-Sunni splits. Did they know that enough, do you think? Oh, um, to be honest, the policymakers in Washington really didn't care about that. And the, anything that complicated their worldview uh, about Iraq and Saddam, they really dismissed or ignored it. Analysts were trying to kind of get into areas, and we should have done the, more of this in terms of getting into areas that had not been explored before by previous analysts in the government. But there was no real demand for this material. What were the consequences of that? Um, we went into Iraq incredibly ignorant of our surroundings, incredibly ignorant of their history. Uh, uh, there's a point in the book where I say, when Saddam tells me, you know, you're going to fail in Iraq because you don't understand the language, you don't understand the history, you don't understand the Arabic mind. And, and I, I remember thinking, you know, something, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And w we went in there in incredibly ignorant of our surroundings. Okay. So order number one, your marching orders, find out where the WMD are. Is that it? That was primarily the the real question that that, that Washington wanted answered. So how do you uh, how do you go about doing that? By the time we got into WMD, Saddam knew we were going to be asking about this, and uh, he was actually very forthcoming. I thought, but one of the problems, and I don't mean, wish to go on here, but one of the biggest problems in dealing with Saddam Hussein was the fact that he was so suspicious and so secretive that even when he was telling you the truth you somehow suspected that he was lying. Mm. And it made made our jobs very, very difficult. When you are trying to find out where the WMD are, do you go in with the mindset that we know they're somewhere, so let's get him out of let's get it out of him. Do you go with the mindset, which actually turns out to be true, they they might not be there, or do you go with them with the mindset, I'll pretend that I'm open to him claiming they're not there, but I really know that they are. 
I would say a little bit of the first and the third option there. I was still a believer in December of 2003 in WMD. It was only after I came back uh, in the winter of 2004 that it began to really dawn on me that he was actually telling the truth and that there was no WMD. And it was only after I had gone and looked at some of the other uh, detainees, what they had said, uh, that it really began to sink in. Um, Saddam, as I said, he could, he just left you with this feeling that, he, you know, somehow he was holding back and he would always answer your questions first by asking his own questions. Mm -hmm. And it was a game of cat and mouse constantly with him. Yeah. And you also observed there was one instance where he kind of perceived that there was something off with the dynamic among your interpreters. And I don't know how book smart he is, but he shows his emotional intelligence by waiting in there and trying to sow dissension and manipulate things. Oh, it's a metaphor for how he ruled his country. You know, he was he was not a, an intellectual man, but he was a very street smart person and he was very clever. And he was able to see that there was disagreement among people who should be on the same side. And he was able to manipulate that to a point where both people from the agency and the people from the military began to disagree with one another and, and also started to get annoyed with one another. And like I said, that's how he ran Iraq. And that's how he managed to – one, one of the tools he used to maintain himself in power for as long as he did. But you found out that Saddam was as, – as cagey as he was, there were these huge gaps in his uh, intelligence or perception about, say, the United States intentions. Yeah, oh, my gosh. He understood his country very well, much better than we did. But when it came to America, he had not a clue as to, as to what was happening or, or how things worked. For example, with 9-11, I asked him what was his thoughts about once he had heard about the 9-11 attacks. And he said he felt relief. He felt that this would show the United States that Iraq was not their enemy that their enemy was was al qaeda and extremism yeah. and that actually we were they were th both iraq and the united states were threatened by the same group well it seems to be the second time the second big time as relates to the united states that he made an enemy of my enemy type miscalculation and the first was during the iraq war when the iraqis well between the iraqis or the iranians the iraqis were the side that the united states was uh supporting more openly but then when it's revealed that there was an iran contra deal and that the united states were secretly shipping weapons to the iranian the shock the shock Saddam. yes Yes. Oh, he was, he was from all that I've read in terms of, well, the diplomatic reporting, which I think is now on WikiLeaks, but also from, from talking to him, uh, he was confused. And one of the things that Saddam really didn't understand was how the United States could be so inconsistent in terms of its relations with Iraq. We, we went from estrangement after, after Camp David in 1978, 79, uh, into resuming diplomatic relations in 1984, and everything seems to be fine, and we're giving him intelligence on the war against Iran, and then all of a sudden, we're double dealing with the, the Iranians and Iran-Contra, and then, he, he, then all of a sudden, he wants to punish Kuwait, and the United States basically says, we don't have a dog in this fight, is James Baker's famous phrase. And then after he invades Kuwait, uh, the United States says this will not stand and builds a coalition to push him out. And it's that inconsistency that he saw from Washington that, you know, really put him behind the eight ball, internationally speaking. 
Did he give a coherent to your ears explanation for why he invaded Kuwait that started the first Gulf War? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and it ha- much of it had to do with economics and money. Saddam, Saddam, you have to understand something about Saddam. He was a poor boy from, from Tikrit, and he came from a hard scrabble upbringing, and he had nothing. And he worked by hard work and duplicity and luck. He found himself on the top one day. Um, but money was so important to him. And he had turned to the Kuwaitis after the Iran-Iraq war. He owed billions of dollars to the Gulf Arab nations. Uh, and he turned to the, the, the Gulf Arabs, particularly the Kuwaitis and the UAE, and said, you know, I want you to forgive these loans because if you don't forgive these loans that we have outstanding – uh, I can't get international financing to rebuild my country, and they refused. And he he felt that he had it was the hugest sign of uh, dis- ingratitude mm-hmm. from then. And uh, with the Kuwaitis, uh, the, their, their high-handed ways with him just grated on him. And eventually, and this is one of the real, most interesting things we learned in terms of the the invasion of Kuwait. One day, he just decided he was going to teach them a lesson, and he didn't ask for his advisors. Normally, we would think you know, a leader would ask his intelligence community to look into this and give me options and come back to me and talk to his advisors and get all sorts of inputs, and that was not the case at all. He just said one day to his Revolutionary Command Council, I'm going to invade, I'm going to invade and, and teach them a lesson, yeah. and they all said, yes, sir. And he never thought that the United States would intervene, that the Saudis would essentially pay for it. He just never saw, thought that through. The ambassador, April Glaspie, went to see him and that is, you know, that has been well documented what she said. And she said, basically, we believe that this is an inter-Arab, uh, uh, an affair, an inter-Arab affair and that it requires an Arab solution and the United States is not going to take a position on this. And from Saddam's point of view, that was, you know, that's, that's what he wanted to hear. Yeah. And if we had been clear, if we had told him that – Listen, if you, if you invade Kuwait, we're going to put 500,000 troops into Kuwait to push your army out. We are going to build a coalition of over 20 nations, some of whom will be your Arab neighbors, that will, will work against you and that will go to the Security Council and get re- binding resolutions. I am certain that he would not have done what he did. But, he, but you know, we, we were the ones who were not clear. Well, it did seem we were clear before the uh, invasion of Iraq that George W. Bush oversaw. He yes. he didn't understand that either. Or well, there was in, I think you described sort of misunderstanding on both sides. That in his memoir, George W. Bush talked about the ample time that he was given to uh, leave the country or at least back down. But Saddam didn't see it that way. You know, I asked him. I said, "Why didn't you just leave when the president gave you a certain amount of time to leave?" And he said. Why should I leave? This is my country. This is my home. You know, why, why are you coming here? That's the real question from his side. And also, near the end, Saddam was very disengaged from running the government and was not paying – he was not on top of things the way he was in the 80s and the 90s. He just and wanted he to be a novelist, right? <laughs> he, he was writing a novel and he was sending – drafts of his novel to Tarek Aziz and asking for feedback like as much as a week before the invasion. Just completely out of it. By the way, can you imagine a more fraught position than being asked by Saddam Hussein, hey, give me honest literary criticism? 
<laughs> and then you say, oh, God, this guy can't write, but uh, I can't say that. It was so bad. I, I can't even begin to tell you how bad it was. We found like 500 to 700 pages of, of the novel, but also his poetry. And it's some of the worst poetry you'll ever read. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. There is an aspect to you having talked to and uh, interrogated Saddam that is the unlocking of a mystery. I mean, you sit in your desk there in Washington, and then this is the one of the very, very rare occasions where you get to match up all that you surmised. You get to match it up against the reality. Was there a systemic effort to say, all right, let's sort of go back and retroactively see what we got right and wrong, maybe apply it to the next dictator we're trying to figure out from thousands of miles away? I can say unequivocally the answer to that question is no. We're just, our government is not really interested in what happened uh, and is not very good at going back and doing postmortems. And with this, especially with the agency, the agency seems to always want to look over the horizon and never wants to look backward. And I think it's because if they are forced to look backward, then they are forced to look at things that are unseemly and then they might have to change course and they'd rather not do that. You're right that Saddam pretty much saw that his execution was nigh. What opinion do you have, not just of the execution, but how it played out and was shared uh, on social media? The, you know, his, his hanging was actually, could have been a cause for martyrdom. Once he was captured, I knew he was going to lead to some sort of a trial and that there would be some sort of an adjudication and decision and then a verdict and, and then probably most likely execution. And I thought that this would be a good thing for the Iraqi people because it would show that rule of law was established and it would also bring closure to the Iraqi people who suffered underneath his rule. Um, but what we ended up getting was, you know, mob justice in the middle of the night. This is not the way things were supposed to work. And I was, I was sickened by it. It's consistent with the way Iraq has been ever since his overthrow. You know, you now have a government that's more corrupt than his, government more dysfunctional than his, and you have so many things that have gone wrong in the region since his removal from power. It unleashed so many forces in the region that are now in control or creating havoc in the region. I'm often asked the question, you know, are things better now without him or, or worse? And I, I say unequivocally they're worse. Yeah. Sean Hannity used to berate callers who would say anything against the war with that question, you know, in that in that uh, conservative talk radio way where the host is never wrong. And then I noticed one day he stopped <laughs> asking it. <laughs> well, we didn't even get to the part where you go into the Oval Office and talk to Cheney and talk to Bush, and it is so worth it. It's a big part of debriefing the president, the interrogation of Saddam Hussein by John Nixon. Thank you so much for your time, John. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And now the spiel. What do I care if Milo speaks at CPAC? Doesn't this permanently discredit CPAC? What do I care if his publisher gives him a book deal? Doesn't this tell me all I need to know about Simon & Schuster? I would prefer to live in a country where no respectable publisher would pay Milo. You know what? Maybe I do live in that country. Not because Simon & Schuster revoked its offer, but because they defined themselves as non-respectable when the offer stood. This book publisher, all these campus conservative groups, this conservative organization, for all I care, they can pay 
whoever they want, whatever they want, and the rest of us can learn just who they are. Milo is not particularly clever or provocative. He just has an English accent and a bad dye job. His originality is based entirely on the fact that almost no one will follow him into the fetid gutter where he collects his bilge. So many of his lines, like feminazi lesbians, it's just biting off what Rush Limbaugh pioneered 20 years ago. The big problem to me isn't hate speech, it's his inaccurate speech, his wrong speech that people believe his assertions of fact are just so often incorrect. The shooter, this terrible um, uh, atrocity in Charleston, um, people trying to get into his, into his mind and work out what, what he was really motivated by. The fact is we'll never know, he was crazy. Uh, we know. We also know that Milo isn't crazy. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly how to provoke campus protesters. And they are dutifully provoked. And it all adds up to Milo's increased infamy. Famous, infamous, it's all the same to Milo. My problem is, actually not Milo, but that there is such a big audience for Milo and such a loathsome audience. They have such a disproportionate power to bully and to twist the conversation. Like this exchange from a campus speech he gave. You're wearing a hijab in the United States of America. What is wrong with you? Milo's statement is a provocation. It's not a particularly skilled one. And yet, those people cheering, they got provoked. This is his business model. I find appalling the applause part. Former Breitbart writer Ben Shapiro told me that his daily deluge of anti-Semitism on Twitter dropped precipitously after Milo was banned from Twitter. Do I support that ban? Sure I do. Twitter often tacks towards cesspool. Milo encourages his followers towards savagery. Banning him makes Twitter better for the vast majority of its users. You know, I think my argument with Twitter and Simon & Schuster is intellectually consistent. Private businesses should navigate the platform they provide and calculate the fallout. And they should factor in what kind of workplaces they want to be and what kind of society they want to foster. Two days ago, Milo got his greatest comeuppance yet. Maybe his first real comeuppance. So a year ago, he essentially endorsed pedophilia from a personal and sexual perspective. Unlike his anti-Muslim and anti-woman and racist provocations, this proved a grenade too far. And it was Milo's petard, not his profile, that was hoisted. The New Yorker's Jelani Cobb explained that in endorsing pedophilia, Milo was for the first time attacking a group whose humanity was not in question. I tend to think it's just the provocateur's destiny, like a shark that only knows how to swim and feed a character like Milo or Ann Coulter or Jim Trafficant or Lyndon LaRouche, Louis Farrakhan, etc. They only know how to do one thing to keep provoking until it blows up. It never ends well for these people. Bill Maher is taking credit in part for Milo's downfall. I supported the booking on the Bill Maher show. I think Milo came off as incoherent and not especially not on drugs, shall we say. But in Maher's formulation, he was the sunshine that proved to be the disinfectant. I don't know. If the CPAC invitation stood, we'd all be screaming, Bill Maher, you're normalizing him. I think Milo did to himself what a creature of his ilk inevitably will do. Sunshine is disinfectant? I don't know. I look at the fact that the podcasts that were unearthed that proved his undoing were a year old. So it seems more the case of not disinfectant, but 
don't I have some roach spray down in the basement? I better use it before the infestation gets any worse. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Mary Wilson, who thinks sunshine is the best disinfectant, but also that hydrogen peroxide gives you a great tan. Chris Berube, just producer, hails from Canada, which according to the Corruption Perception Index, is the ninth least corrupt country in the world. Taken alongside other top 10 finishers, Denmark, the Netherlands, Sweden, Norway, and Finland, it makes you wonder if by sunshine they mean snow is the best disinfectant. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He believes sunshine is the best disinfectant and laughter is the best medicine and that gaping wound he's had since 1998 will soon be healing on its own. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is scouring the Panoply podcast archives for any remarks Gretchen Rubin may have made that can earn her an invite to be the keynote speaker at the CPAC conference. The gist, mythical figure Milo of Croton lifted a baby bull every day of its life until he was strong enough to carry the fully grown bull. Sort of like Milo of Breitbart, but not with the bull, just the bullshit. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.